Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Disability Study Channel on the New Books Network. This is Shu Wan, your host. Today, I feel very happy to invite Ben Mentelin to join us to introduce his newest book, Disability Pride. So the first question I want to ask Ben is that uh, I want to ask you to introduce yourself to our audience. Oh, sure. Well, I'm glad to be with you. Um, I am a 60-year-old man with, uh, I was born with, spinal muscular atrophy, which is a muscle weakness. I've used a wheelchair my whole life. And uh, I, uh, I'm i a writer. I, I work for, well, I have written for different publications and websites. And I've been fortunate to publish three books uh, kind of related to my uh, disability understanding. Okay, thank you so much for your introduction of yourself. So, next question is that I want to watch you talk about the reason you take interest in the field, the promising field of disability studies. Uh, well, you know, I, uh, I live with a disability. I guess that's reason enough. Uh, uh, you know, I, I found out researching my my last book that disability studies really only began around the time of the Americans with Disabilities Act of 1990. So when I was in school, there was no disability studies. It did not exist. And you know, now it's everywhere around the world you can get an advanced degree in disability studies. That's um, one one aspect, one one sign of what has changed for disabled people uh, 
over the past 30, 35 years, uh, certainly in my lifetime. Thank you so much for your answer again. So now let's turn to your book, uh, Disability Pride. So for your book, my first question is that, could you please briefly talk about the history of disability rights activism in the United States before and after ADA, the milestone legislation? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Sure. Um, you know, disabled people have been around as long as there have been people. Uh, so disability history is, you know, forever, and we're only starting to learn about some disabled folks that had been made invisible or erased from the mainstream historical record. Uh, I mean, I knew before I wrote this book, I had heard about the uh, independent living movement, people like Ed Roberts and Judy Human in Berkeley, California, but there's so much more to the story. So many more people who contributed to uh, our understanding of, of uh, disability as a, a social phenomenon, not just a, a medical or clinical or pathological one, but a social phenomenon. Uh, uh, there were protests for disability rights uh, in the early part of the 20th century in this country, and uh, the, the fight to get the ADA passed, well, it was a bit tricky, you know. Um, I think one of the big contributors to the, the cause uh, were the veterans. Uh, you know, people aren't too sure about people they think of as old or sick or something, but veterans, well, that's politically popular. So, uh, gosh, veterans from World War II were part of the reason that things like motorized wheelchairs were invented. And I think it was partly the Vietnam War vets who helped pursue legislation, at least in this country. Uh, so that with the ADA, you had Republicans and Democrats supporting it. It was truly a bipartisan effort. Now, even up to the last minute, there were some uh, attempts to undermine it or limit it severely. Uh, and uh, uh, heck, there still are. Uh, a lot of efforts to undermine the ADA. Um, since it passed, well, it, it's primarily enforceable in the courts. So court cases have helped kind of define the, the standards and uh, create a better understanding, I think, of the 
class of citizens that are entitled to ADA protections, um, mostly to the good, uh, but there are still efforts, there are political leaders and business leaders who still want to do away with it or make it weaker because they don't want to comply. So thank you so much for your answer. So now for the next question, I'm wondering what disability pride, I think is a big concept and, and, and phenomenon discussed in your book. What is disability pride is and why it matters for us? Yeah, it's a good question. It, it's a difficult concept for some people. It means, I think, different things uh, to different folks. Um, I started the book because about five years ago. I began seeing uh, visibly disabled fashion models getting in catalogs and billboards for you know, glamorous products. Uh, a paraplegic uh, woman won a Tony Award for musical theater. Uh, and I thought, you know, wow, uh, something has changed. Uh, there's a, a degree of, I don't know, acceptance of people that are being publicly disabled instead of trying to hide it away. And I wondered, how did that happen? How did these folks come to feel so okay in their own skins, despite you know all the stuff society does to make people feel bad about not being, I don't know, whatever the normal standard is supposed to be. Uh, how did they get there? And, and, and how did they convince the uh, the gatekeepers of media that it would be okay to have visibly disabled people so prominent, so prominently displayed, I should say. Uh, so I thought of this idea of this uh, kind of self-esteem issue that people face. But as I spoke to different disabled folks, there was a theme that came up over and over again. So many people said, particularly those who grew up with their, with their disabilities, you know, yeah, when I was younger, I thought I was the only one like me, or I felt bad about myself. But as I grew up, uh, met other disabled folks, maybe online as well, and, and, and got a sense of community, uh, as well as I think through disability studies, understanding the history, uh, the, the oppression that disabled people have always faced, uh, all these things help give people 
uh, a sense of, of pride about their heritage, about the community that they're part of. People still struggle with it. You know, it's kind of an ongoing thing for most of us. Uh, and that's all. Yeah, I think it, it's, it's, it's partly a matter of self-esteem and, and partly a matter of feeling connected to the larger community and, and history. Uh, you almost can't help feeling pride once you understand all that, all that, uh, all the different things that disabled people are doing and have always done. Thank you so much for your answer again. So for the next question, I'm wondering how disability studies help us to understanding the bigger concept, disability pride. Yeah, no, I think it's a very important part of it because huh, when I was in school, when I was in school huh, a long time ago, before disability studies, you know, I was very much on my own. Uh, I thought I had to prove something, and if, if I couldn't, I maybe felt bad about myself. I think when you have disability studies, uh, well, you get a perspective uh, on, uh, well, on the world and on the history. And uh, you come to understand that some of the bad feelings are where they come from. They come from the outside, from forces that are unfair and unjust and <clears throat> beyond your control. Uh, and maybe you become a... a a bit of an activist. It, it gives you a, a sense of mission, you know, that, that you, 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 uh, you, you first have to feel pride about yourself and, and your, your, your disability, and then you can go and try to fight for your rights and, and other people, uh, you know, help other people feel a sense of, of pride as well. So I think all that can be really kind of engendered through uh, disability studies. Um, and there are cases, I, I quote in my book, uh, where, you know, students after disability studies would, would band together and, and assert for better access in the lunchroom and other other places, and not just disabled students. You know, non-disabled students take disability studies classes too, and they, <coughs> I hope, uh, learn something uh, about our situation so maybe we don't have to always be explaining it to other people. 
Thank you so much for your answer. So for the next question, I want to invite you to talk about what is disability justice and why it matters. Disability justice. It's a good, good phrase. Uh, I think it's often misunderstood. And in a way, I'm, I feel a little uncomfortable talking about it because it was really coined by a group of disabled folks about 15, 20 years ago uh, who wanted to address the shortcomings of the disability rights movement up to that point. And particularly, I think, the way it uh, did not address the particular issues facing disabled people of color and queer and trans disabled people. You know, I'm, I'm a, a white, cisgender, heterosexual guy. So I'm not, I feel, as I say, I feel awkward talking about it because it was really, uh, 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 it was specifically about the issues of, of uh, intersectionality and, and the, the way all these different uh, movements are uh, interrelated. Um, so, uh, disability justice points out how, uh, the very capitalist system that, you know, that pushes, uh, you know, survival of the fittest and get ahead of others is inherently anti-disability. I think I'm saying that correctly. Uh, it, you know, the disability rights movement, the ADA is okay, but laws can only go so far and they don't really address all the injustices uh, that, that often can't be legislated. At least that's my understanding. Yeah, thank you so much for your answer again. So for the next question, I want to invite you to talk about the politics and the aesthetics of the representation and the visibility of disability in the real world, um, cyberspace, and on the screen. Yeah. Uh, well, as I say, I started the book because of seeing this representation of, of uh, or, or really this... Uh, visibility of, of disability. Uh, but, you know, there are a lot of, uh, well, let me back up. Disabled people or disability has long been represented in books and movies and plays, but usually badly. Uh, you know, written and performed by non-disabled people. Um, hang on one sec. Yes, sir. Excuse me.
Thank you. Uh, um, I think we're starting to see more uh, actual disabled people uh, portraying their lives uh, in well on TV and movies and on stage. Uh, Heck, writers like me are able to get published. <laughs> and you know, I tried for many years to publish a book, and I could not until 10 years ago. Uh, I think there is a greater awareness now in media about representation and uh you're somewhat about disabled people being part of that. It's not just about uh, race or gender or whatever. Uh, now, look, it's still not enough. Uh, there's still a lot of bad portrayals of disability. Uh, but I think in the past uh, few years, we maybe you're starting to see some improvements. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Thank you so much for your answer again. So for the next question, I want to invite you to discuss how healthcare disparities influence people with disability during the COVID-19 pandemic. Yeah, that's a biggie. Healthcare, oh, where do I start? Uh, you know, if you go to a a public restroom, and you find an accessible stall, you're going to see grab bars around the toilet. I have never seen grab bars in a doctor's office. Uh, how are you supposed to get from your wheelchair on the examination table? You're supposed to. I mean, doctor's offices are under the ADA, but nobody seems to think about that. They're never sued the way stores might be. Uh, so there's that. There's a, a lack of access to facilities and to uh, you know, medical uh, services. Uh, it became very clear during the worst 
of the pandemic that there, there tends to be a prejudice I think that's the right word a prejudice in the medical profession against disabled folks uh, it was revealed that there are different states have different names for it but there were protocols uh, in a medical emergency who gets helped first based on uh, what your survivability I guess uh, so that young people and non-disabled folks would get access to health care before others. In some cases, people were afraid that their the people who use ventilators, uh, that they would have their ventilators seized, taken away, and given to others who might need them. Uh, there are other issues as well. I mean, we know how bad the nursing homes were, uh, how ill-prepared they were to uh, protect people during COVID. And a lot of disabled folks live in those institutions. Um, there is a physician, I believe she's at Harvard, uh, she has multiple sclerosis, and she did a survey of her fellow doctors, and they, they pretty much admitted they had no training in how to deal with disabled patients. And, you know, if, if a, a patient called up for an appointment and said, gee, I use a wheelchair, well, I'm blind or deaf or autistic or whatever, they'd be like, oh, we don't have any openings. Uh, they would turn people away because they just didn't want to deal with it. I myself have experienced it. Uh, a few years ago, I was in the hospital, and fortunately, when they asked gee, uh, is his life worth saving? Should we do, you know, everything we can to preserve his life? My wife was there. She said, yes, you know, don't, don't shortchange him just because of his disability. This doesn't happen to other people. Uh, there was a story uh, of a man, a paraplegic, quadriplegic, I'm forgetting the details now, but went to the hospital and the doctor basically said, we're, we're not going to help him. <laughs> the wife recorded the conversation. It's on YouTube. Uh, they didn't want to help her husband and he died. And she said, yeah, Maybe it was partly because we're black, but I think mostly it was because he's disabled. I didn't think he was worth their time. 
So these uh, disparities are severe and, and really dangerous. And it was uh, particularly uh, clear in the, the, the worst of COVID, but still clear today. I mean, the attitude toward, you know, no more mask mandates and everyone's acting like COVID is over. It, it's not, you know, and for people like like me who are, you know, kind of high risk and, and vulnerable, uh, it, it's a concern. I wish people were being more careful. Okay, thank you so, so much <clears throat> for your answer again. So for the next question, I'm wondering how the legacy of eugenics affect people with disability today, especially in terms of the controversy about a city's suicide and institutionalization. Mm. Yes, that is controversial. Uh, but it, it relates to your previous question about health care. Uh, <laughs> let's face it, it's simpler and cheaper in many cases to help people to die than to help them to live. Uh, now, I know a number of disabled folks who just don't get why we, people like me, object to the efforts to legalize assisted suicide. Uh, People say, hey, I, I might want that option one day. Uh, it gives me hope, they'll say, that I can take that out if I just can't stand to live with my disability anymore. Uh, yeah, well, I'm all, I'm all for, for choice, but I don't like the... The, the, the standard for who is entitled to suicide being based on a medical diagnosis. Let everybody commit suicide if they want to. People won't go for that, you know. Uh, if an able-bodied person or a non-disabled person feels suicidal, there'll be interventions to try and, you know, talk them out of it or whatever. But if someone like, well, like me, uh, decides I just don't want to live anymore, I don't think anybody would argue with me, you know? They'd be like, yeah, you're right. Uh, there have been many cases of people who petitioned for a prescription for, for poison, and oftentimes, uh, the judges or whatever would overlook the fact that these people had oh, lost their jobs, their spouses had left them. I mean, there are other reasons that you can feel depressed, but it's so easy to blame everything on the disability. And uh, gosh, sometimes, how can you not? feel, you know, suicidally depressed when society 
tells you, you know, no jobs, no romantic prospects, uh, substandard health care. Uh, yeah, we ought to legalize assisted suicide for people like you. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, I think. So that's what scares me. The more suicide, assisted suicide, is legalized, and it you know, has been in more and more places, the more it sends a message to disabled people that they're expendable. And indeed to legislators that, you know, that maybe they don't have to work so hard to make it easier to live with a disability. If, if, if you know, poison is an option. Uh, so that's what scares me. This sort of systemic or, or uh, broad political standard that, that says it's rational for a disabled person to want to die when it is irrational for a non-disabled person. Um, it's not, you know, that's, again, that can be very dangerous, I think. I, I hope, I hope I'm making sense. It's a, it's a very tricky subject. But I believe it, I believe in it very much. Yeah, I totally agree with you. So now for the last question today, I want to invite you to talk about the few, after talking about the past and the present of disability pride, especially in American society, I'm wondering about the future of disability pride in our society. Well, uh, the future, hmm. I think the good news is that disabled people everywhere are active, are still active. I admit I was afraid when I started my research that maybe the younger generation had grown complacent, that my generation and the one before me had given them rights and everyone was just resting on their laurels, I guess you, you, you could say. Uh, but no, I was wrong. People are still active in many different ways. Uh, uh, but it's always the progress, you know, it's never enough. Uh, I still think, well, that's one reason I wrote my book. I still think it's important to help educate people and enlighten people about uh, the history and the community and the issues and you know, what what pride means and and why you should you should feel pride. Uh, it doesn't mean. You have to always like your disability. It may, it's going to cause frustration. 
it may cause pain, chronic pain, you know, stuff you don't like. Uh, but that doesn't mean you gotta you gotta hate yourself. Uh, you know, it doesn't mean you. It it it, it doesn't mean you uh, would wanna. Well, let me let me rephrase that. I I've always felt that my disability is part of who I am, and if I didn't have it. I wouldn't know who I was. Uh, I wouldn't have books to write. I wouldn't. I wouldn't be on your your podcast. Uh, you know, it, 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 it's important to me, and I wish it were easier. I wish I didn't have the frustrations and the pains and all that. But it's part of who I am, and uh, I think it's important to to realize that and not feel bad about yourself, even if those aspects of your life are uncomfortable or problematic or, or even painful. So I'm, I'm always, I, I don't know, I'm an optimist, I'm hopeful, but I know, <laughs> I know saying that sounds kind of naive, because there are still a lot of issues out there uh, that can be very damaging for disabled folks. So, you know, we got to keep keep alert and uh, keep speaking up and, and uh, spread the word and, uh, I don't know, hope, uh, hope things get better. In my lifetime, I've seen tremendous improvements, and I, I hope that continues. Yeah, thank you so much for your answer to my last question. So at the end of our podcast episode today, I want to talk to my to our audience. So hi, my audience. I very appreciate you listening to the podcast today and uh, listen to Ben Mentoring's talk about his newest book, Disability Pride. I want to say, as the disability historian myself, I learned a lot from reading reading Ben Mentoring's newest book, Disability Pride, and listening to his talk today. So I highly recommend everybody listening to this podcast think about, about buy a copy of this fantastic book, Disability Pride. So thank you so much for listening to our podcast today. Have a good day. Thank you. Every day we rise challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.